0: Today on Eco Report, There are several communities that are immediately on the coast. The islands that their communities are on are actually eroding at a relatively significant rate.
1: We speak with Taze Jones, a coastal ecologist for the National Park Service.
2: EcoReport is a weekly public affairs program
3: providing independent media coverage
2: of environmental and ecological studies
1: with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events.
2: In order to foster open discussion
1: of human relationships with nature and the earth.
2: And to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world.
3: EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers
2: working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana.
3: And financially supported by listeners like
4: you.
1: Good morning, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Don Guerra, and I'm Aaron Comforti. Breaking news this morning: as a new study has come out claiming to prove that exposure to nature is actually good for you. Who would have thunk? The study findings suggest that people living close to trees and green spaces are less likely than others to have health-related, uh, weight-related health issues. Those conclusions come from the new report from the Institute for European Environmental Policy. It's the most comprehensive study ever done on the relationships between health, nature, and well-being. Access to nature, the study contends, offers health benefits like decreases in allergies, increases in self-esteem, which this study will increase even more, better mental health, fewer deaths from heart disease and respiratory illnesses, fewer hospitalizations, and healthier infant birth weights. The study found that middle-aged Scottish men who were poor but lived in green areas, had a death rate 16% lower than their more urban cohort. Now, if one of these super-healthy rural Scottish men happened to buy a Polar Pop or a new cheap cell phone or maybe just some work gloves at the gas station, there's a good chance that while their air quality is just going to be fine out there, the product that they brought may have had a negative impact on air pollution where the product was actually produced. According to a new report,
4: consumers in the so-called West – Are contributing to global air pollution by importing goods like inexpensive toys, clothes, and cell phones. Annually, about 22% of the nearly 3.5 million premature global deaths from air pollution are related to goods and services that are produced in one area for consumption in another. The report noted that the cost of imported products is lower than domestically produced ones because of less stringent air pollution regulations in the manufacturing countries, not to chief surf cheap surf-like labor. As the report says, quote, "The consumer savings may come at the expense of lives lost elsewhere." Unquote. Fine particulate matter from power plants Factories, airplanes, and shipping in 13 regions, covering over 200 countries, was the focus of the report. Those particles can cause asthma attacks and can enter the bloodstream from the lungs, causing inflammation, altering blood clot formation, and making blood vessels more permeable. Concerned about the health impacts of industrial mining, El Salvador recently took action that would reduce the air and water pollution
1: from metal mines in the country. That's right, Don. On March 29th, El Salvador's Legislative Assembly voted to ban all mining for gold and other metals in the country. The vote followed a 10 year old moratorium on mining and roughly 400 years of Spanish and Latin American colonial, ecocidal, and genocidal metal mining throughout Latin America. Aside from standard mining procedures, which have generationally poisoned entire communities with unsafe practices such as using mercury in the mining process, The main reason for the ban was to protect the country's decreasing supply of clean water. The new law blocks all exploration, extraction, and processing of metals, both in open pits and underground. The law doesn't apply to quarrying or the mining of coal, salt, and other non-metallic substances, but it prohibits the use of such toxic chemicals as cyanide and mercury. Before the vote, a Salvadoran town rejected mining through a local referendum. The community mobilized in a mass public protest to demand that legislators start discussions on a mining prohibition. On March 9th, when the protesters reached the Legislative Assembly, they were met by a multi-party commission that committed to starting discussions immediately with the goal of creating a law banning mining before the Easter holidays. And back in 2015, the EPA decided to put in place
4: a ban—a ban not on metal mining, but on the agricultural pesticide chlorpyrifos. Recently, though, Scott Pruitt, the EPA's new industry-friendly chief administrator, overturned the ban. Scientists have documented repeatedly that chlorpyrifos is a nervous system toxin that's particularly dangerous for children's developing brains. Exposure to the pesticide increasing the risk of long-term developmental problems, among them attention, memory, and intelligence deficits, tremors, and autism. On November 10th, EPA released a revised assessment of chlorpyrifos, that defined a new exposure limit for the pesticide. The assessment revealed that some children between the ages of 1 and 2 are exposed to levels over 14,000 percent above the limit. The pesticide is especially harmful to rural children who are directly exposed to pesticide drift from spraying on crops. Pruitt caved to pressure from Dow Chemical, which patented and still sells most of the chlorpyrifos on the market. President Trump's inaugural committee
1: received $1 million from Dow Chemical. Meanwhile, ecosystems and wildlife in the U.S. empire recently gained and lost some regulatory protections. On March 3rd, President Trump signed legislation permitting wolves and their cubs to be killed in their dens and bears to be gunned down in bait stations in Alaska's national wildlife refuges. The bill also allows people to shoot animals from aircraft, and use steel-jawed leg-hole traps to render animals stationary until they can be shot to death. The purpose of a wildlife refuge, as its name indicates, has traditionally been a sanctuary for wild animals. Now, it's also a sanctuary for tourist sport hunters. Not all news is bad news. The tiny but fierce cactus uh, phynginus pygmy owl had its Endangered Species Act protection reinstated recently, in response to a lawsuit by the Center for Biological Diversity. An Arizona federal judge overturned a 2011 decision by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that had revoked the endangered species designation for the owl. A year ago, ECO report aired a story about the coral bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef.
4: Now that the Australian summer is over, we can report the status of the reef this year. The news is not good. Scientists in Australia have discovered, quote, Horrific coral bleaching across the Great Barrier Reef. There is now a 900-mile stretch that has been damaged for consecutive years. Aerial surveys of the entire 1,500-mile stretch of reefs found that about two-thirds had suffered serious bleaching due to record-breaking water temperatures. It is the first time that scientists have observed consecutive years of serious bleaching events. This is the fourth time the Great Barrier Reef has bleached severely. In 1998, 2002, 2016, and now 2017, bleached corals are not necessarily dead corals, but scientists anticipate high levels of ultimate coral loss resulting from this latest round of bleaching. Bleached corals are not devoid of fish and other species, but the numbers at present are very much reduced. There are other factors impacting the the reef, Mostly agricultural runoff, but high water temperatures resulting
1: from climate change are considered to be the major effect. And just a bit further north in the Pacific, Japan has begun scheduling Olympic sports training in a highly radioactive area where the worst nuclear catastrophe in recent history occurred. The men's and women's J-Village National Soccer Training Center is scheduled to be the training facility for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics before the tournaments. The J-Village is what Tokyo Electric Power Company used as a disaster staging and support facility during the initial days after the Fukushima nuclear disaster, which occurred in 2011. The J-Village is about 12 and a half miles south of the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. The immediate environment, including food, is contaminated with radiation. Further The ruined reactors are in an unstable condition, and cleanup has proven to be nearly impossible. New all-weather training grounds and accommodations are expected to be built within the next two years at J-Village. and The site opened originally in 1997 as Japan's first national soccer training center. The persisting damage and danger caused by the Fukushima nuclear disaster has many people concerned with the safety of nuclear power, and now more and more people are turning to solar.
4: A solar revolution is coming to Africa. Both grid connected solar power and off grid solar energy now offer cost competitive means to meet rising energy needs and bring electricity to the 600 million Africans who currently have no electricity. The systems and financing in Africa can be novel. One approach is called the pay as you go system. Panels about as big as a laptop screen, together with two or three lights and a radio, are supplied to the customer. This system is for off-grid customers who generally earn 5 to $10 a day. The kit is sold mostly on credit. A customer pays a $30 deposit and takes the system home with them and installs it in their own home. They usually pay off the remaining balance of the loan over a period of about 12 months, using their mobile phone to pay. Once they have paid off the balance of the systems, after a year, they own it outright. The rapid rise of pay-as-you-go solar home systems and integration with mobile phone payment technology is an example of the speed of innovation that is taking place. In East Africa alone, over 450,000 such systems have been set up. It is estimated that up to 60 million Africans already may be using off-grid renewable electricity of some kind. Because the African population is expected to grow by several billion over the next century, the development of
1: non-carbon dioxide-polluting electrical
4: generation is an important global issue.
1: And from the global to the local, Eco Report is bringing you coverage of environmental issues that you probably don't hear anywhere else. Here in Indiana, Miller Ridge in the Yellowwood State Forest is being heavily logged, about three-quarters of a mile from the Tecumseh Trail, on steep slopes and leaving deep ruts in the road. This timber harvest is an example of the policy decisions being made by the Division of Natural Resources, and by extension, the General Assembly and the Governor. The state forests should be, on their terms, considered timber farms. Some claim that logging is good for wildlife, such as game birds, but ecologists generally dismiss that as an excuse for profiting off the forest, by asserting that logging practices do not in any way replicate natural tree felling events such as strong winds or lightning. Quote, large unlogged areas of interior forests provide lifeboats for mobile species affected by logging practices, says Dr. Leslie Bishop, a biologist, Brown County resident, and staff scientist at the Indiana Forest Alliance, or IFA. For WFHB, I'm Aaron Comforti, and those are the headlines for this week. And I'm Don Guerra.
4: Eco Report is brought to you in part by Solar Systems of Indiana, designing and installing renewable energy systems. SSI is a member of the North American Board of Certified Energy Practitioners and works to foster the acceptance of solar energy across the Midwest through education and consultation. More information by phone at 812 336. Two seven eight five or online at solar systems of Indiana.com.
1: Today we'll hear a feature from correspondent Norm Holly with Taza Jones about Alaskan coastal erosion.
3: This is Norm Holly for WFHB, and today I'm interviewing Taza Jones. He's a on the natural resources team for the National Park Service in the Alaskan region and his expertise is on coastal issues. So, um, tell me about what the um,
0: coastal issues are in in the Alaska region. In the Northwest Arctic, uh, one of the biggest concerns that we have is the loss of sea ice that's happening there and then the that those are having on the land-based uh, systems there. So, what I mean by that is one of the biggest issues that we have in in that region of the of the Alaska Park Service is uh, coastal erosion. Sea level rise is one of the real big challenges that we have in terms of monitoring. We don't have any long-term NOAA-level sea level rise instrumentation in that particular area, and so the nearest Sea-level rise monitoring stations that are generally in the vicinity are actually on the Russian side in Providenia, Russia, and the sea-level rise at that station is looking to be in the ballpark of about three millimeters per year. So, yes, there appears to be sea-level rise in that general vicinity. There's a couple changes that are going on. So, sea-level rise, as most people think about it, is um, really relative sea-level rise to where they are, where they're looking, and so uh, on the coast, we have a couple of things that are happening where uh, the sea level, you know, is is potentially changing at about three millimeters a year. But you have another thing that's happening where the permafrost that's out there along the coast is also melting, and and like ice, when it when it melts, it actually becomes more dense. In in other words, it 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 loses volume, and so. When the ice that's in the ground loses volume, the land itself goes down. And so you have a little bit of a combination of both sea level actually changing at the roughly three millimeters a year, and then you have across melting, which can drop land levels in certain locations. There are several locations, communities that are immediately on the coast, and they're very specifically facing an issue of... Uh, erosion is the real big issue there, and so the islands that their communities are on are actually eroding at a relatively significant rate, um, and that that really is creating a, a fairly significant hazard for the the communities themselves. So, uh, how, how far north
3: are the coastal uh, areas being affected by by this melt of the ice and permafrost?
0: As far north as Alaska actually goes. So. Uh, the permafrost melt is happening throughout all pretty much all of alaska and and it's happening from the north slope all the way down and into uh, western alaska so it's a pretty widespread uh, widespread issue historically there's actually been a fairly significant amount of of water open in the summer and that opens up it It's happened in terms of opening up, generally speaking, in June, just when it opens. And in the past, it's closed somewhere in the ballpark of November, December-ish is roughly where the sea ice comes in solid enough that there's not a lot of open water. There's a little broken leads and things here and there, but there's mostly not a lot of open water at that point. Projections of shipping uh, into the future through the Bering Strait and up into the Arctic are, there's projections that it'll significantly increase. So there's been a little more than a doubling of the amount of vessel traffic in, uh, particularly in the Bering Strait region uh, from roughly 2009 to about 2013. And that is projected to uh, at least double again, according to some of the lower end estimates. And and it, you know, could be significantly more than that. So there is definitely a of more shipping moving through the Bering Strait area. So if a ship ran aground in in the, we'll just say in the Bering Strait Arctic environment, if something like that were to happen, there, you know, it it really depend on what that ship was actually carrying, and it would depend on the level of response time and and when it happened. So response times can be relatively slow in in the vicinity just because there's not a lot of infrastructure that's actually there to uh, address an issue like that. Now, there are some very good response organizations that uh, could be there um, relatively quickly, but if the spill was a significant size, it it could be a relatively significant impact. Oh, temperatures are uh, projected to raise a, a couple degrees Celsius, which is actually fairly significant. And and the real big issue is is that um, certainly in in the north northwest arc where I've, I've focused a lot of the coastal work that that we've been doing is is the issue becomes one of the temperatures are very close to freezing on average, throughout the year. And if you move those temperatures up a little bit to where they're not freezing throughout the year, then you start to create a situation where you're significantly melting your permafrost and you're not able to retain it. And that becomes a big, a big issue both from an erosional standpoint, from a, a elevational land loss standpoint, and uh, in terms of how the, the way that nutrients and water flow are moving into into our coastal system. Right now, we're actually working on a project to uh, go out and identify what we'll, we'll call uh, long-term monitoring of the coastal lagoons in the national parks up in the northwest vicinity. And so what we're doing there is we're trying to uh, literally get very base-level monitoring to understand something about the physical conditions, and uh, and by physical conditions I mean what are the water temperatures like? How do they fluctuate? How do they change throughout the water season? And is that changing over the long-term perspective? And the same is true with looking at some of the fishes that are coming into the lagoons and 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 using those lagoons. And are they are the fish changing? Are their sizes changing? Are the different com- are, are, are the communities of fish that are coming and changing. So that's one of the projects that we're, we're working on
1: right now. Eco Report is currently seeking volunteer journalists to contribute short weekly headlines about ecological issues from indigenous resistance to infrastructure projects to climate change and biological diversity. Commitment is light and you can set your own schedule. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. And today we did hear from Norm Holy. who did an interview with Taze Jones about the Alaskan coastal erosion issue. Now it's time for In Nature, a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of south-central Indiana.
2: This is In Nature
3: have to turn the mic way up in order to pick up this sound, but it's the echolocation signal of the Indiana bat. Indiana bats live in hardwood forests and hardwood pine forests. It is common in old growth forests as well as agricultural land like croplands and old fields. Overall, the bats mostly live in forest, crop fields and grasslands. As an insectivore, the bat will eat both terrestrial and aquatic flying insects like moths, beetles, and mosquitoes and midges. The Indiana bat spends summer months living throughout the eastern United States. During winter, however, they cluster together and hibernate in only a few caves. Since about 1975, the population of Indiana bats has declined by about 50%. Based upon the 1985 census of hibernating bats, the Indiana bat population was estimated at 244,000. About 23% of the bats hibernated in caves in Indiana. The Indiana bat lives in caves only in winter, but there are few caves that provide the conditions necessary for hibernation. Stable, low temperatures are required to allow the bats to reduce their metabolic rates and conserve fat reserves. These bats hibernate in large, tight clusters which contain a a few thousand individuals.
2: You've been listening to In Nature.
4: And now for our weekly events calendar. The Bloomington Community Farmer's Market has returned to its outside location, located at 401 North Morton Street in Bloomington. The market is open every Saturday, April through November, from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Stop by to pick up fresh produce, prepared foods, seasonal flowers, and much more.
1: And kick off Earth Week on Monday, April 17th at the Bryan Park Tree Survey from 6 to 7 p.m. Learn about forest inventories and the trees in Bryant Park in Bloomington, Indiana. Meet at the Woodlawn Shelter in Bryant Park. The event is free. The film Death
4: by Design will be shown at Woodburn Hall, room 100 on the IU campus on Wednesday, April 19th at 7 p.m. The film screening tells the dirty secret of our digital addiction. The film uncovers a story of environmental degradation, Health Tragedies and the Tipping Point Between Consumerism
1: and Sustainability. And meet at the Bloomington, Indiana Courthouse steps on Saturday, April 22nd at noon to participate in the People and Planet Before Profit Gathering hosted by the Southern Indiana Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Contact Cynthia Roberts at s y n r o b e r at umail.iu.edu for more information. Join the Indiana Audubon
4: Society for an exclusive Falling Springs Warbler field trip to the Falling, Falling Springs Bird Sanctuary in Orange County on Saturday, April 22nd from 8 a.m. to noon. The sanctuary is located at 11471 West Country Road 75 North in French Lick, Indiana. The property features deep ravines and gorges among shaded hardwood forest. Falling Springs is a great place to find nesting Kentucky and worm-eating warblers. You must pre-register. For questions and to register, email birdindiana at gmail.com.
1: This week's
4: news stories were written by Linda Green and Norm Holy. Aaron Comforti edited the show. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Megan Wade and Matt Griffin are our engineers. Our executive producer is
1: Joe Crawford for WFHB. I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Aaron Comforti. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news and resistance until then eco report encourages you to take direct action to defend the earth
3: you've been listening to the eco report
2: a volunteer powered production of community radio wfhb
3: in
1: bloomington indiana
2: available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org
1: ECO REPORT IS YOUR INDEPENDENT, ECOLOGICALLY INSPIRED NEWS SOURCE
2: FOR SOUTH CENTRAL INDIANA.
1: BRINGING YOU
3: NEWS THAT THE EARTH WANTS YOU TO HEAR.
2: SEND YOUR COMMENTS, SUGGESTIONS, AND STORY IDEAS
3: DIRECTLY TO THE ECO REPORT STAFF.
2: THE email ADDRESS IS
0: EARTH AT WFHB.ORG.
2: THAT'S EARTH AT WFHB.ORG.